Triple Content Creations presents Disability After Dark, the premier podcast shining light on sex and disability with your host, Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by the worker owners of Come As You Are. Come As You Are has the peculiar distinction of being the world's only worker-owned cooperative sex shop. With feminist and anti-capitalist values, Come As You Are only carries sexuality products that they truly believe in at the lowest price possible. Get free shipping at www.comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there guys, thanks so much for coming back to Disability After Dark and wanting to have a conversation around sex and disability with me. Really excited you're here and I'm really excited for this brand new episode. I'm going to dive right in because this is one that I'm super excited for you to hear. This is a really important episode and one, it, it touches on a topic that I've wanted to explore in doing this work for a long time. It talks about the linkages between autism and sexuality and that's something that I've never really had the chance to consider or explore and I understand now through having done the interview, which you'll hear in just a minute, that my privilege really wasn't allowing me to have these conversations and I've always been curious about how people who are not, who are not who are not typically neurodiverse experience sexuality and I've I also noticed through this interview and through talking with my guest Alex Haygard who is an amazing disability activist is all over social media has done amazing things in the UK presented work in the UK has done really awesome work talking about Invisible Disabilities, as you'll hear. Um, in talking with them, I realized that I had a lot of privilege around my my experience of disability as only being physical, and I wanted to talk with somebody who experienced disability in a different way. And speaking with Alex, I, I opened my eyes to so many different possibilities in the way we talk about sex They really got me thinking, and through most of the podcast, I don't talk a lot through this one. We banter back and forth a little bit. We make some jokes about sex and disability here and there, but I really don't say a lot. I spend most of the hours sitting back with the mic, ready to speak, being like, I don't want to speak. There's too many good, there's too much good stuff here. In fact, during the editing process for this podcast, I told Alex, I'm not cutting anything out. This is all too good, and I'm not removing any of this. So you, this is such an informative podcast around the linkages between autism, sexuality, demisexuality, the linkages between consent and the medicalization of the sexualization of sex and disability. There's so much here, you just have to dive right in. So without further ado, here's my interview with Alex Haygard, right now on Disability After Dark. 
Alex Haygard, thanks so much for coming on Disability After Dark. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. I've been following your work on social media now. I don't even know how I started following you. I think maybe you started following I, me. I'm not really I sure. How found, I think maybe we found each other through the Disability Visibility Project. I think it was on Facebook that, that we first found each other. Oh, yeah, that's right. Dis- disability Visibility is amazing. Yes. Yeah, I've I've found so many great people through that they're they're fantastic and what alice wong is doing is just like whoa yeah fantastic work if anybody who's listening doesn't know who alice wong is you should definitely follow that right now absolutely pause and type in disability visibility project on any social media page and you'll be blown (laughs) away by the awesomeness of that page but alice wong's amazingness aside that's not why we're here today we're here to talk about your awesomeness. So, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I told the audience a little bit about how awesome you are before this part of the this part of the show. <laughs> Why don't you kind of reintroduce yourself to the audience and tell us all who you are? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so my name is Alex, and I'm. I guess I call myself a disability activist now, in addition to being a sociologist and artist, which is sort of how I've identified myself in the past. And now I sort of combine all three. Um, I identify as disabled. Uh, for most of my life, my invisibility, uh, my disabilities have been pretty much entirely invisible. But over the last year, they've um, they become more visible. And I actually just recently started using a manual wheelchair to help me get around. Um, I also identify as uh, demisexual and as genderqueer, um, which is, I think, one of a few of the things we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, and, and basically, sort of all of these things all inform each other, my activism, my research, my art, and my gender, my sexuality, and my disability. They sort of all combine into one big mess of interesting things. <laughs> A nice, sexy intersection of things to go together. (laughs) We love intersections. (laughs) Yeah, super sexy intersections. Um, And why I was, what I loved about the form you sent me for getting this in, when when I sent it out to you and said, "Can you tell me what you want to talk about?" The first thing you said was, "I want to talk about um, autism and being non-binary and all that stuff." And I thought, you know, this is really cool because I, you know, we we I know what autism is. I know how the media kind of sort of poorly portrays what it is. So that's how I kind of know what it is. But I don't think we ever talk about it in terms of sex and, and yeah. disability. Um, so when you were like, I want to talk about all these things and how they intersect, I was, that's why I was like, let's do the interview right away because I want awesome. to hear all about this. <laughs> um, so can you kind of, first of all, can you kind of um, tell me how autism affects you on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, totally. Um, So it's funny because this is, it's something that I've wondered about for like probably about 10 or 15 years now. I sort of was like, I wonder if maybe that's me because growing up, I I, I didn't have any friends really. And then sort of um, getting into high school, I'd, I'd have friend groups, but then I'd drift away from them. And I never really had any sort of lasting relationships of any kind with anyone my age and it wasn't really until I got to university where I started making friends and when I, when I had my first and, and actually only uh, romantic relationship um, but even then I was still sort of the weird one I would still have 
sort of weird behaviors that didn't quite fit in. And my friends would sort of, you know, rib me about them. But I, I still always felt like, you know, sort of the, the odd one um, in my friend group. And then um, as I actually, it was sort of over the past two years where I've sort of started openly identifying as autistic. And for a long time, I felt uncomfortable doing that because I didn't have an official diagnosis. Um, the few times I've, I've broached uh, doctors to ask about it, they were all like, no, 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 you, you're much too good at modulating your voice and facial expression. You're demonstrating theory of mind, um, the way you're talking. So you obviously can't have this. Uh, and it wasn't until I sort of found the autistic community on Twitter and found in particular the self DX is valid hashtag that I started to realize a sort of the identity that I was realizing I, I, well, yeah, the identity I was identifying with um, being autistic was sort of a valid thing to to assign to myself uh, in the absence of an official diagnosis. But also right. getting to know these other autistic people, I was like, this was the first time that I ever felt normal, which was just so weird. Like people were saying that they'd have these social experiences or these sensory experiences and I was like, oh, my God, that's that's totally me. And that sort of had never happened before. I was always um, sort of like, yeah, I'd, I'd be stimming. Like, for instance, before exams, I'd be sitting there listening to really loud music and bouncing up and down. And my friends would be like, what the hell are you doing? But then sort of, I've now realized that was that was stimming. That's what I was doing. That was just a thing that is is sort of normal when you're autistic. Um, and stimming is just for... Sorry, yeah, stimming is so basically... A, Autistic people tend to have a lot of sensory issues, and to some extent that can come in the form of, of sensory input being overwhelming for us, uh, or it can also be in the sense of needing sensory input to calm ourselves down. And sometimes it comes in both forms, like if we're feeling overstimulated by something in our environment, then we need to provide ourselves with some other form of stimulation that helps us distract. So I'd probably everyone's seen the fidget cubes and fidget spinners that are sort of trendy right now. And and basically yeah. those came about as a tool for autistic people to handle when something in their environment is becoming overwhelming for them. It's a way of providing a sensory distraction. So like I have a cube that I carry around with me and when let's say the lights are too bright, like I was I was shopping in um in a department store a couple weeks ago and it was just, the lights were so bright and like the surfaces were all so reflective and it was really loud. And so I was starting to feel really overwhelmed. So I, I got my fidget cube and I was just flicking it. And that gave me something to sort of divert my attention away from all of this input that was actually sort of causing it a kind of pain. It's, it's hard to describe. It's not like a physical pain, but it, it, it's like it's hurting your brain essentially when that happens. Right. Now, maybe it's because it's, it's we're on a sex podcast. When you said... <laughs> When you said fidget cube, I know what it is, <laughs> but my brain did go. I was like, mm, that could totally be like a sexy <laughs> for a body part. I don't know. Like, I, you know what? I can, I, I can definitely, I mean, what is, what is the rule? I forget. Is it rule 42 that basically, you know, you can find a fetish for anything on the internet? Yeah, right? <laughs> and it, for some reason, as soon as you said fidget cube, I was like, yep, that's what it's going to be. <laughs> um, so yeah, in my in my, you know my ignorance of autism and my my growing understanding of it, when you said we're talking about stimming, I was thinking yeah. of like the I was thinking of well now I'm thinking of like other sexy things that I wasn't thinking about before, but I was thinking about um, 
Temple Grandin and the the you know overly used representation of the hug machine. Yes, is that? Yeah. Oh, so Temple Grandin's a bit of an issue in the autistic community because um, I mean she's got sort of a lot of privilege. Obviously, sort of white female cis female privilege, um, but yeah, she's also yeah. you know she she's fairly wealthy and and. Um, sort of, well, she would call herself high functioning, um, which is in itself kind of a problem because she makes sort of a lot of distinction between um, sort of the, the and I, I hesitate to even use these labels because they're, they're quite harmful to people who are non sort of speaking or whatever, but, you know, the high functioning, the Asperger's label, um, which sort of classically a lot of people tend to use to create these weird class divisions within sort of the, the overall autistic community and a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of people sort of with Asperger's or, or who are sort of verbal, um, who are successful in terms of, you know, career or whatever, will sort of tend to separate themselves out from, you know, the the non-speaking, the the less functional as they, they would describe it, autistic people. And she's been sort of very known for that. Um, and then, yeah, so, yeah. In the, in the CP community, that happens too, like... Interesting. That, that classist, and I, 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 I'm when I was younger and a bit less mature, I was quite guilty of being like, oh no, no, I'm not like that. That's not. I don't have that. I don't have that kind of CP. So I've definitely done it. And now that I'm grown and and educated in like intersectionality, and I would never ever do that now. But when I was yeah. younger, it was like, well, you know, badge it, of honor to be like, I'm not like that. No, no, I'm good. In in a weird way too, like. When I when I first started identifying openly as autistic, it, it was a bit weird too because in a way I thought I was doing a good thing by say acknowledging, oh yeah, I'm high functioning, like sort of acknowledging my privilege, but I didn't realize sort of how loaded that functioning label was and and how sort of artificial it was too because I'm realizing that like as I as I learn more about autism and I learn more about how I was sort of forcing myself to appear neurotypical, I also feel less compelled to force myself to feel neurotypical and so a lot of people probably would now look at me as less functional but I actually feel a lot more a lot happier and a lot more comfortable in my own skin now that I'm I sort of don't care like yeah I I will take out you know my fidget cube or I'll I'll you know if I need to sort of flap my hands in public or you know make sort of a weird noise because I'm feeling overwhelmed I I do it now because I sort of don't care and you know, that would be interpreted as less functional now. But for me, it's actually, it, it's more functional. So it's a really weird and artificial sort of distinction that's being made there. Yeah. And so how does all of this stuff, and thank you for the really, really like thorough in-depth primer into how autism affects you. Because now I have a much better understanding of like the individual lived experience. And I feel a lot less inclined to look at to look at Temple Grandin movies with uh, Claire Danes as, the, <laughs> yeah. as the, the thing to watch but I, I I'm curious how all of this affects your sexuality or has it yeah. affected your sexuality? Um, no it totally has and and in sort of confusing ways um in a way because for such a like it's only in the past couple of years that I started openly identifying as autistic, but it's only in probably the last year or so that I started openly identifying as demisexual and genderqueer because for a long time, I thought that my weird 
tendency not to relate to people in a sexual or romantic way very frequently, I thought, oh, well, that's that's just because I'm kind of weird. And then as I realized, oh, that's probably just because I'm autistic and I have trouble relating to people. Um, and, and in many ways, I think probably it still is because I do, it's sort of rare for me to form a real connection, like to have that sort of click, which is sort of hard to describe. But you know, when you, you meet and start talking to someone and it just feels natural, it doesn't feel like you're having to put effort yeah. into it. And that's something that's really rare for to happen for me. Um, and so to, to that extent, I think that does sort of inform the fact that I, I very rarely become romantically interested in someone just because I, I very rarely feel that comfortable around someone. But there is also something to the fact that you know, um, even among those people with whom I have that spark, there is, it's still even rarer again for me to be, um, be sexually attracted to them or, or romantically attracted to them. So there, there's something in, in terms of, because autism is very much sort of a social construction, it's very much about the way you relate to people. It, it sort of, unavoidable that it informs my sexuality and, and my, my romantic life. But, um, and, and I mean, I suppose I, I could probably just set the demisexual label aside, but I find that it's a useful label, sort of regardless of how tied up it is in my autism, I find it a useful label for describing my romantic experiences because they are still something that people don't tend to be very used to, um, and particularly. And the audience listening being like, demisexual is... <laughs> So that essentially means it, it's it's considered to be on the asexual spectrum, um, which of course asexuality means that you don't experience sexual attraction um, commonly, and and it is it is very much a spectrum because some people will not experience sexual attraction to anyone, and will even some people are even what's what's described as sex averse. It means that that the idea of having sex with anyone really grosses them out, um, right. and then it sort of goes on a spectrum towards demisexual which means that you you may be attracted to someone sometimes but you have to have an emotional connection to them first which isn't to say that you're never interested in sex that you don't have a libido this was something that all threw me for a long time too because i i enjoy sex um you know i i, I masturbate um and awesome. and i have a libido <laughs> sorry <laughs> um, awesome. but, Thanks, yeah <laughs> but um you know, it's, it's, so I thought, oh, well, I, I can't be on the asexual spectrum then. Cause like, I like sex. Um, but then I was thinking about it more and like, I've only, I've only had sexual interactions with three people. One of them, I was drunk at a club and I was trying to get over my ex and I was like, I should just make out with someone and get it over with. And while I was, I was like, this is so fucking boring. Like there was just no attraction. And that's sort of, I just never become attracted to someone unless I know them. And that's like, so I'd have friends trying to fix me up with their friends. And then I'd, I'd go home and I'd be like, the next day they'd be like, well, what was wrong with him? I'm like, there's, there's nothing wrong. He's, did you not think he was, you know, handsome enough? I was like, no, he's, he's fine looking. And they'd be like, so what was wrong now? I'm like, I, I, they, they, I didn't know him. I didn't feel that spark. There was yeah. nothing there. <laughs> and so, yeah, it just, it's, it's just very rare that, that I'll, I'll have any interest in a particular person and that I'll be interested in having any sort of sexual interaction with them. And in order for that to happen, I sort of need to have some sort of emotional or 
mental connection with them. And then I think I feel like I feel like too, even for people who are familiar with demisexuality, that can sound a little bit scary because it sort of sounds like I can't have sex with you unless I'm in love with you. And if I'm having sex with you, it means I'm in love with you, which isn't quite accurate, at least for me either. It just means that there's some sort of emotional connection there that provides a basis for for that interest to, right. to happen. See, <laughs> when I have sex with somebody, I'm in love with the sex I'm having. Not necessarily the person, but I do get... I And I've mentioned this, I think, in a blog or, or a podcast <laughs> previously. I am a self-identified fuckling, which means that <laughs> I pretty much fall in love with you after we fuck because you've provided me the sex I want, so I kind of fall in love with you. So I, I love not, that like, term. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, everybody should start using it. That's great. Um, I'm, I'm a fuckling because I literally, I imprint on you because you're the person that like gave me the sex that I've been looking for because my disability... Yeah. means that I can't have sex as often as I'd like to and and I, I can go months and months sometimes a you know a year or more without sex and so when yeah. I finally do get to like have that experience I'm like whoa I'm totally connected <laughs> to the person when I might not even like the person at all but I'm like <laughs> you're the one that brought me the sex that I want again so I'm gonna like I'm gonna imprint these feelings on you that aren't necessarily the truth yeah. And, uh, I, you know, it's funny when you mentioned that term, I sort of wondered how much that overlaps with disability because that I mean, this is the thing, too. It, it sort of, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in people in that way that often, but there is also like it, it becomes even less feasible for me to meet people because of the disability, because I mean, also because I'm, I'm also um, physically disabled, like I'm living with my parents right now. I'm in a rural area where Honestly, I went on OkCupid just for fun in the last few months, and I think the best match that I had within about 50 kilometers of me was an 85% match, and I have very strict rules about OkCupid for myself, which is that it... If I'm going to message someone, they have to be 95% match because otherwise I know I'm it's not, it's, I'm going to get bored really quickly, and it's not going to be, it's not going to be worthwhile for me. So I was like, okay, well, that sort of rules out a lot of things. <laughs> um so if you do feel that spark with somebody how like if you were to be like i want to i like you and i think i want to engage in sex with you i mean is that like (laughs) yeah that the the autism makes that one uh awkward as well um so like delve into that awkwardness with us oh absolutely um yeah it's it's i i've sort of I'm at the point in my life that I, I'm able to sort of find these things kind of funny um they you know I yeah, used to yeah, sort of feel much more embarrassed about them but it's like um so with my with my sort of only proper relationship um we met in undergrad uh in physiology class and at the end of one lecture he was like oh um you know why don't we sit together in physiology class from now on I was like oh yeah okay cool and then I think two days later, we had our, our next lecture that we were both in that class, and it was a biochemistry lecture. So I deliberately sat on the other side of the lecture hall because he'd only invited me to sit beside him for physiology, obviously. So, you know, he didn't want me to sit beside him for biochemistry. And then I'm sitting there, and I'm noticing him giving me this really weird look the entire lecture. <laughs> and 
after that, I was like, oh, maybe he wanted to, like, just sit with me in general. And so people need to be very explicit with me when uh, when they're interested in me. And, like, yeah, I, I'm not – flirting has always been an incredibly difficult thing for me because even if I'm sort of recognizing that maybe there's the possibility they're flirting, it's not something I'm ever sure about. And, of course, there's that emotional risk involved with flirting that – because I'm so much less certain about what's happening, I'm never really willing to take that leap. And so I sort of always err on the side of, oh, no, they probably weren't flirting with me. And then basically I tend to be much more icy than uh, than people are sort of inclined to expect when you're actually interested in them. Um, so that's often been a problem for me. And I've heard that this isn't necessarily sort of universal to autism because I've also heard of, of people who um, – are, are femme or non-binary um, to sort of have taken the opposite approach. They've learned how to flirt, but they just sort of flirt by default because they're, again, they're not sure how to turn it on and off or when it's appropriate or when it's not appropriate, but they sort of err in the opposite direction to me. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I think that might be um, very, uh, that's very, very common in terms of disability generally. I kind of flirt as a default <laughs> only because I don't really know like, first of all, if I see somebody who I know is queer, a queer male-identified person that I'm into, that I that I like, my immediate go-to is to be like, hey. And, <laughs> and like, that's not necessarily because I want to. That's because, like, I think I have to in order for you mm -hmm. to notice me. I have to be a little bit, like, gregarious about what I'm yeah. offering because if I'm not, you're not going to – you're going to pass me by. So I understand that in terms of, like – not knowing how to turn flirting on and off. I don't know how to do I don't know how to turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, that's sort of I, I've heard sort of either one or the other, um mostly from people in the autistic community, but to an extent, yeah, from other people in the disability community. And it's sort of yeah, it's sort of interesting because you're in this different space in terms of, of what's possible for dating and flirting and sex. Um yeah. <laughs> I so, think I mean there's something too to the fact that growing up I was that awkward sort of not really femme enough weird kid who people weren't interested in so that was sort of like this learned behavior and so that just sort of became my default assumption and and now that's hard to to break out of <laughs> yeah like I definitely and the audience has heard that like go back to episode 14 in this podcast and you can hear me talk about how I was the awkward weird kid for most of my high school <laughs> So, and really, if I'm being honest, that that hasn't changed. I'm 33 now, and I'm still the awkward weird kid. Yeah. Like, how do I do this? Um, but I wanted to ask, like, we, we were talking about stimming earlier, and like mm. the, the overstimulation or the need for stimulation. Does that ever affect, like, on the occasions you've been sexually active? Mm. Like, because when you have sex, there's a lot of stimulation that happens yeah. during. So I'm curious. Does the stimming effect happen to you when you engage in sex? So interestingly, not not really, because once it's a bit weird. I'm sort of touch averse in general with with people in general. I'm not I don't like hugging. I don't like touching um, until there's someone who I really feel comfortable with and trust. And it's usually the sort like if. It's not always the same, but if I'm sexually interested in someone, they're also probably someone I'm comfortable um, being touched by. And there are a few friends who I'm sort of comfortable with being hugged by. And and once 
once I'm comfortable with that, I actually become really clingy and I really like being hugged and touched. Um, so in that case, um, it doesn't really cause any issues for me, although I know there are quite a few other um, sort of autistic people who are, <clears throat> whose, whose touch averseness does extend to sex um, and, and can be a real issue in relationships for them. Um, the one issue that I sort of always have is that I, I, I don't like light touching. So if someone just sort of runs their fingers through my hair or something or kisses me lightly, I'm like, ah, it feels like there's spiders crawling all over me. Um, but that's, you know, that's a fairly easy issue to overcome. So in that way, I'm, I'm sort of pretty lucky uh, in terms of that. But I do think in a way, sort of the touch averseness sort of with general people can inform whether they think I'm, I'm open to or interested in yeah, sort of because when, intimacy. Because yeah. When you're flirting with somebody or you're trying to make, you know, you're trying to advance things forward, we've been taught to socialize, like touching, yeah. light touching as a as a part yeah, of like, exactly. like as a part of like silent <laughs> consent. So because of your autism and, and all of those things, if you if I couldn't touch you and I didn't know that you had autism and you were dealing with all this yeah. stuff and you were managing all this, and we were at a, like let's go back to your club scenario. Let's say you were at the club <laughs> with that with that gentleman and he went to touch you and he didn't know. If I were him I'd be like, Oh my goodness, I'm sorry, yes. I've been too well like so how do you like have you navigated that experience where you've had to to be like uh don't touch me but it's not because i don't want you to it's because you can't (laughs) it's something it's something i'm still sort of learning and because i sort of have these encounters so infrequently it's it's yeah it's sort of not something i've worked out perfectly yet like with my most recent sexual encounter i i i sort of tried you know casual touching um to express my interest and then i mean he was great because he sort of he he knew that at that point i was sort of identifying as autistic and that i am not good with implicit signals so he was very good about sort of explicitly asking me what i was comfortable with so that was great um but you know even then i i'm still sort of learning i'm learning how to be autistic again to be honest because for so much of my life i've sort of learn how to properly pass as neurotypical. And so now I'm learning how to comfortably be autistic. So there are are sort of things now that I would probably be more open about. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not really, you know, a big fan of light touching, um, sort of with flirting. And I, the sorry. podcast title in that, in that, in that comfortably autistic, I feel like you could run, I feel like you could have your own show there. Just as you were saying it, I was like, that's totally a podcast. We should, we should talk about that. That, actually, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> because really, I mean, there isn't enough exposure to the reality of being it's, autistic. It's I true. Think. Like even, even actually one of my best friends who, you know, when I first, um, when I first met him, um, and he didn't know at that time. Well, actually, it was it was sort of just before I started openly identifying as autistic. And he was saying, "Oh, I know this person, and I wonder if they're autistic because they don't really seem to be very empathetic." And that's like, he, you know, my friend is awesome. He's really understanding, really open to sort of learning and trying to be inclusive. But like, this is just it's sort of the message that's driven home. And so he had no idea that that's like actually really offensive if you're autistic because a lot of us actually are not only empathetic but we're like hyper empathetic um it's just we're not good at sort of displaying that empathy and then for those of us who don't sort of experience empathy there are also some really amazing kind people um 
I, I don't know if you're familiar with Era Brand on Twitter. Yes, yes. But they're they're another person who everyone listening should go and follow because they're amazing. Um, and yeah, they they don't experience empathy, um, or at least sort of not what neurotypicals commonly describe as empathy. And they're this incredible, inclusive, intersectional activist. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's this sort of misnomer that people with autism are cold and and unfeeling, and it's just so inaccurate. Well, I mean, we look at the the media representations of that. Like, I'm yeah. thinking of Temple Grandin again because <laughs> the way, like, I and mean, I'm thinking of the Claire Dayton's portrayal because really, that's where, to be honest, that's where I learned about autism. Like, mm-hmm. in terms of how I understood what it was, and then there was that portrayal on Grey's Anatomy. Like, I want to say maybe ten years ago, one of the doctors had like severe autism. Oh and yeah, yeah. So. As a pl- as like a plot device, two of the main characters had to like hug the doctor in this funny kind of way. And so when I was watching it at the time, and I watched it recently, and I kind of giggled. But now that you've just told me all this, I'm like, ew! Yeah. This is a horrible, <laughs> bad representation of like how to treat us. Yeah, you're 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 effectively a piece of livestock. Let let us apply pressure to you to to calm you down. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. Um, I want to get back to your uh, experience with your most recent sexual experience you were talking about. Uh, you said that you you he, the, your partner was comfortable with your your self identification as having autism. Did you have to like come out to him? Sort of. So I I'm well when I, I I've not been on a dating site for a while because I'm in rural area and there's no point. But when I was sort of on OkCupid, um, I was pretty open about my disabilities because, well, A, because they're, they're a really large part of who I am and, and also what I do. So it's sort of unavoidable for me. But also I sort of recognized that um, at a certain point it was going to influence my my dating life and my romantic life and my sexual life. Um, not only the autism, but I should probably mention I also have narcolepsy, which on one occasion did cause me to be 45 minutes late for a first date, which went really well. Um, so yeah, I was pretty open in my profile. Um, and yeah, I was lucky enough that he sort of answered my, my message back anyway and, and was very sort of understanding about this from the get-go, which which was great. Um so in that sense, I didn't officially have to come out. I was sort of out from the beginning, but we I did sort of talk about it a fair... Well, I, I talk about it all the time with pretty much everyone I know. I'm, I'm not very closeted about my disability. Um, so I talked about it kind of a lot from, from the beginning. And so I, in some ways, I think that actually made it easier because there wasn't any sort of surprise to have to navigate around. Um, although there is sort of the the converse issue that when you're that open from the beginning, it sort of narrows your dating pool immediately. But I sort of, from my perspective as as someone who's not that interested in that many people all the time and and isn't really interested in just having a one night stand necessarily for, for me, it makes more sense to be open from the beginning because you know, it's always, it's going to become an issue at some point probably for me. So, yeah. Um, and I, I noticed on, on social media, you started using the manual chair, which I thought was awesome. And yeah. I was like, that's great. <laughs> I'm wondering, you've had to navigate the idea of passing as like neurotypical mm-hmm. for so long. And, and probably also you had a little bit of um, 
passing privilege with the ability to not have the chair. So now that that's in your life, which I, I think is a great addition if you need it, I think it's awesome. But now that that's part of, like, the photo was great, and but the chair was <laughs> very visible. Is that something you are kind of getting used to or are you getting comfortable with that as part of your image? Is that something you are, like... Weirdly, I, I have a lot of imposter syndrome around using it. I'm still sort of in a place where I'm like, am I like, am I being attention seeking by using this? Am I like, am I really disabled enough that I, I deserve to be using this? Um, which is kind of a weird thing. I mean, like my legs feel so much less in pain since I've been using it over the past week. Um, and, and honestly, like I, I was traveling in the UK this past week and I've never like, I sort of, I was so much less tired than whenever I've tried to sort of function normally and move around a city before. Like I'd get home and yeah, my, my shoulders, my arms would hurt, but I wouldn't be like bone tired and my back wouldn't be killing me and my legs wouldn't be killing me the way they used to. So that was kind of great. Um, but <laughs> funnily enough, sorry, that's also when I laugh, I sometimes honk because I also have weird lung things related to the Ehlers Danlos. So sorry about that. Awesome. <laughs> it's really that's also really fun when you're like with someone new and you laugh and it just comes out as this like honking cough. Um, oh, no, I've really... been there. I have, I have <laughs> yeah. so I know. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun for terrifying new people. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm actually sort of. I, I mean, you've probably seen too. I do sort of like photo series and slightly conceptual art a lot around disability and identity. And I'm working on sort of, uh, I've been working on a photo series, sort of trying to make visible, invisible aspects of disability. And then I've also started wearing um, a little hidden camera around to snap pictures of people looking at me in my chair. And I, I got actually a ton over the past week. It's kind of hilarious That's how many. I've got to edit because they're, you know, they're all a little bit blurry and stuff because of course I was moving and I've got to edit them up. But it, I was actually surprised how many like really blatant stares and kind of grimaces there were as people looked at me uh, and how the looks were. The weird face of like, oh, you're out in the world doing yeah. your thing. Like, oh, my, oh. I had at the airport, uh, it was wonderful. I had a woman actually come up to me and say, Oh, you're so brave for traveling by all by yourself in that thing. I was like, oh yes, I'm only thirty, <laughs> but you know, I feel I'm like such a big girl today. <laughs> doing it, yeah. yeah. Like, why, would you say that to anybody else? No, yeah. but for some reason, you're saying it to me right now. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I want to go back to to the narcolepsy mm. because that was that was a, a surprise thing that you, <laughs> that I didn't know. So awesome. Um, and you said that it affected your ability to go on a first a first meeting. Yeah, and that the was meeting went super well. <laughs> that was oh, I felt really bad. Um, and, and I mean, it's sort of that that's like the nightmare when you have narcolepsy that you're going to sleep through something important. And of course, you you always you invariably end up sleeping through something important. Um, but yeah, I, at that particular occasion, I was getting ready to go, and I just had this overwhelming sleep attack. And I, like I messaged that I say I'm, I'm probably going to be a bit late, um, but like then I just conked right out, and so I woke up like an hour later. I was like shit, 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 and I like ran out the door. But like by that point, yeah, there was no getting there remotely on time. And I arrived, and I, I explained it to him, and yeah, he was not pleased. Um, and it was it was kind of a bit awkward for the oh, rest no. of that date. <laughs> and I mean, I, I sort of, yeah, <laughs> I sort of can't blame him because I mean. 
I, I can't remember if I'd been open. Uh, I don't think I had been open about my narcolepsy at that point. Um, and so like, yeah, I sort of, cause you know, it sounds, it sounds like such an excuse. Um, and that was sort of when I was like, okay, I need to start being just like open about this from the get go. Cause it's unavoidable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you said it went well, I, I didn't. Oh, any no, that was, that, so was that was very sarcastic. Yeah. He, he was not impressed. <laughs> So, oh, I was like, oh, it was great. Um, so, okay, just first so the audience understands, narcolepsy is when you... Yeah, okay, this is another one that's super misunderstood and probably deserves a podcast of its own too. But essentially, um, it means... So neurologically... <laughs> uh, but yeah, neurologically speaking... Essentially, what it feels like is my brain is always operating um, as though it's gone three or four days without sleep. So that that's what it feels like from my perspective. Like if, if you stayed up 72 or 96 hours without being allowed to close your eyes at all, that's sort of my brain's default. Um, and then what what ends up happening there is, well, you, you tend to fall asleep a lot more easily. And of course, the stereotype is that you're like, you'll just be standing there and all of a sudden you'll fall over asleep, which is not... In my case, it's not accurate. There are some people that that happens to, but I, I would say in most cases, it's more that you feel overwhelmingly tired and you'll be able to feel the, the impulse to sleep build up and eventually you will not be able to resist it anymore. And I have had cases where like I've fallen asleep on the toilet or fallen asleep standing at a crosswalk. Um, and uh, usually it's... During sex? <laughs> uh, actually, no. Although I do know people, um, I know people who it's happened to. I have fallen asleep on dates though um when we were sort of sitting watching netflix <laughs> netflix and chill uh and i i could feel it coming on actually and i warned him i was like i'm going to fall asleep please don't think that i'm bored by you or what we're watching it's just me i'll probably be awake again in a few minutes i um, have a super another <laughs> joke that i want to run by you and i hope right. i really i hope that it's not offensive but as you were as you said netflix and chill in my brain, I thought Netflix and narc. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, yeah. To be honest, that it's like Netflix and and falling asleep is like a really fantastic narcolepsy date. I would be into that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, it's it is kind of a running joke too um, in the narcolepsy community that like we need you know a dating site just for narcoleptics where we can yeah basically just have nap dates together, basically just go I somewhere and fall asleep. <laughs> I would be all over a let's have a nap and then maybe I'll wake up and drink yeah. it off and then we'll nap again. Like yeah. that's I that sounds pretty, that. pretty good. Um, but actually, um, so, so in terms of the falling asleep during sex question, one thing that is actually kind of a huge issue, um, both in terms of like just intimacy and also consent is that um there's there's a symptom of narcolepsy called cataplexy which is it's hard to explain exactly what it is but it's basically like your part of your brain falls asleep and your muscle so basically when you, when you're in REM sleep which is where you're dreaming your body actually paralyzes your muscles so that you don't start walking around and acting out your dreams which could of course be really yeah. dangerous and of course we've heard of you know people having sleep sex and sleepwalking and that's when your body doesn't paralyze your muscles properly and you're in REM but you're you're acting out what's going on but basically cataplexy is the opposite problem which is that you're awake but your muscles become paralyzed and that and the the really sort of troubling thing is that it often happens in response to 
um, in response to really strong emotions or sometimes strong physical stimuli like orgasm or pain, which can be a real issue for a lot. Of, like I'm, I'm lucky again in that my cataplexy is very mild. I think the worst I've ever had was that my knees buckled. Um, and that, interestingly, that was after orgasm. Um, but my like there are, too, <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I know, I know of people who become like completely paralyzed during sex, which is a really scary thing, both for them and their partner. Um, yeah, of course. And, and yeah, also, yeah. I, I have heard of people who have been assaulted. Like they, they're fast asleep and they've been assaulted because we we do sometimes. Well, some yeah, we can fall asleep very heavily. And like I can sleep through multiple alarms. I can sleep through fire alarms. Um, so that that is also another sort of issue that comes up in terms of consent is that you know if if you fall asleep in a vulnerable place uh, and are asleep very. Um, soundly, then that that can actually make you really, really vulnerable. Is there any kind of like discussion in the sex positive community about cataplexy and not consent? enough? I don't think I've talked to you. Also, you probably know Kirsten Schultz. Has she been on before? She has. She's okay, awesome. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've been actually talking with her that we sort of need to sort of have a discussion, maybe a blog post about that because. It's, it's not something that's super well-known, and it's sort of something that get talks about in narcolepsy groups, but it's not something, I think, that's well-known outside of those groups. It needs kind of a pop culture, like... Totally, yeah. Um, do, and I think chronic sex, and you, you and Kirsten could definitely... You know, it's funny, because I've mentioned Kirsten to the, today, like, six times to somebody, and then <laughs> on, the, on the podcast that we did... Just this past week, I, she, I talked with her again. She, Her work is just fantastic, and I can't echo how much I love her stuff enough. Yeah, yeah, it's it's awesome. And then um, actually, well, I, I, I don't know. This may be kind of off topic, but another thing that's, I think, really worth mentioning, it's sort of one of my mini soapboxes. I have many soapboxes, but also uh, um, <laughs> just sort of um, the issue of informed consent with medications particularly for narcolepsy, because there are a few issues with that. Um, one of them is that a really common medication for narcolepsy and for a few other sleep disorders, modafinil, this is kind of my, my PSA moment, because modafinil um, renders hormonal birth control ineffective. And most of the women who take it, um, and, and non-binary femme people, or well, not femme, non-binary people with uteruses um, who take it, um, have not been told that by their doctors uh, and only learned about it through the patient grapevine. And actually, that was the case for me. And fortunately for me, I'm not tremendously sexually active, so that was never an issue. But like, I, I know of a few women who've gotten pregnant because they were not told that their sleep medication, their their wakefulness medication, rendered their birth control methods ineffective, which is such a huge issue in terms of informed consent and... Um, yeah, and like, you know, bodily autonomy that doesn't really get talked about at all. And I, I, it's just so bizarre to me how, you know, it, it seems like a lot of doctors are just thinking this isn't really a relevant thing to talk about, but it's such an important issue. Yeah. I yeah. Think consent uh, and the medicalization of disability and all of that needs to be really, really brought forward into the medical community because totally. there's so much stuff around, not just in terms of medications. But just in terms of like the body and and mm -hmm. and disability and the way disability informs, you know, 
the ways we communicate consent or can't communicate consent. For instance, cataplexy or like spastic CP or like things where you can't. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Well, even, even not, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> if I'm in the throes of it, I might not be able to say no, stop, because yeah. my body yeah. is responding to all the stimuli all at once. Yeah. Um, and then what if I wanted to say stop, but I couldn't because I, my, my, I was having a spasm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, and, and also, I mean, it, it, I think, you know, doctors see it as trivial potentially, but even like antidepressants, I, I know people who deal with depression and severe anxiety who are not willing to take medication for it because it has such a terrible effect on their sex life. And, and in particular anorgasmia, which like is kind of a really frustrating thing to have to deal with. And there's sort of no alternative and provided to them. Uh, yeah, basically inability to to climax. And the really frustrating thing in their case was that they they didn't experience a decrease in libido. They just experienced the inability to climax, which was like, you can see why that might be a problem. And and so, I mean, that has discouraged them from getting you know, well, it's basically made getting treatment for their, their mood disorder impossible because there there's sort of no alternative provided and doctors don't seem to really recognize the significance of that in someone's life. I mean, that's frustrating because, like, that means you have a sex drive and it's always there and your libido's always yeah. on. Like, yeah, I was no there. Like, how yeah, do you... I, was, I was talking to them and they're like, honestly, like, if it killed my libido, I could deal with that. But this was torture. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I talk about, I talked in an early, early, early episode of this show about sex drive and how I have a sex drive and sometimes I yeah. lament it. I, but at least, you know, when I could still masturbate on my own and I can't anymore, but when I could still masturbate on my own, I could, I could relieve myself. Yeah. I kind of understand how individuals in that, in that circumstance feel now because I can't self masturbate. Mm-hmm. So I can have all the feelings. And the libido's there, but there's no relief of the, yeah, of the, the sexual d- d- release. So, um, I, I don't. I obviously I don't understand in terms of the entire idea mm-hmm. of that but I certainly can relate. Yeah, there's it definitely sort of a parallel there, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, it's just sort of something I think in in the medical community they sort of. I, I don't know if it's just sort of a puritanical streak that, you know, it's embarrassing to talk about sex or like that it's just sort of trivialized, but it's it's this sort of glaring absence in in medical care or in health health and well, I, I mean I, I this is me getting all medical sociologist, but I mean I think it's part of the thing that medicine the way medicine sort of seems to approach disability is in terms of solving a concrete problem and what it needs to be about is um is about sort of maximizing quality of life because when you have a disability or a chronic illness, you know, it's never going to go away. You can never fix it. So what it, it needs to be a shift in focus to, okay, how can we help you to live the kind of life that you want? Yeah. Yeah. And I like, it's funny that you talk about the medicalization of, of sexuality and disability because I, and I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I don't care. I'll mention it again. <laughs> I went to a doctor a few months ago, and I was dealing with catheters and dealing with mm-hmm. um, my... Yeah, I remember I seeing started, you dealing with that sort of uh, on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. I just started kind of dealing with catheters over the last, 
I want to say over the last nine months, mm-hmm. I've been catheter dealing with catheters, which has not been a fun journey for me. Yeah. And so I had a indwelling catheter inside, and I went to go see the urologist, and I said, you know, urologist, doctor man, I would like to have my penis back, basically. Mm-hmm. And the doctor goes, oh, I'm sure you would. Like, it was a big joke, and I was like, oh, awesome. Like, I want, I want to, I want to, I'd like to have sex again. Yeah. So, like, if we could, like move along with this that'd be great and so it, like it, it just the way yeah. that they don't re- and even my gp i went to my gp a few months ago and she's nice and i love her but i said to her like i want to be able to have sexual function again and she goes oh wow this is getting a little bit weird and i was like oh my god me, me telling you that i want to have sex is weird and you're a doctor i don't what <laughs> that, like, that, oh. yeah that seems like a bit of a problem <laughs> yeah so i, I mean i just it's so frustrating to explain to these professionals who you who you assume when you first meet them because they're wearing typically their doctor coat and they're doing all that stuff. You assume that they are going to come at you with the answers, mm-hmm. and you very quickly realize that they don't know they know less about it than you do. Yep. <laughs> oh yes, I, I have many stories to tell about that too. Not not specifically sexually too, but just yeah. I mean that's that's the. The fun thing about having a sort of a relatively rare illness, you basically end up going into every appointment with a new doctor, like knowing you're going to be doing a little bit of medical education. Yeah. And you're like, wait, shouldn't I get paid yeah, the money? Exactly. Ah, oh, that would be nice. Um, so I had somebody mention to me, so I, ha- I, I have a Google Doc where I get people to write down kind of topics they want for this show. And somebody said, getting non-visibly disabled people to to tell us how they kind of came out about their disability. Do you have any stories around that for yourself? Like how you, like, it sounds like you just kind of don't care. And we're like, I'm going to just be honest about it. Here it is. But was it, was that like a process for you? It it definitely was. Cause I mean, so it's, it's been a bit weird because a lot of my experience of invisible disability has been people telling me there's nothing wrong with me. I mean, I, I've been dealing with what I'm now realizing is probably um, a connective tissue disorder since I was about four years old. And I remember complaining to the doctors when I was probably four or five that my knees were always hurting and it felt like they were popping out of place. And um, they said it was just growing pains, which I, the only people I know who have ever been told they have growing pains are people with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and Ehlers-Danlos um, which is the connective tissue disorder I think I have. Basically, the only people who ever seem to get growing pains are people who, who have actually joint disorders. Um, so you'd think that maybe they'd, they'd figure that one out at some point. But basically, so like until probably about my, my mid-20s, basically my entire experience of disability was actually being told I was not disabled and being like, oh, okay, I guess I'm just a whiner or a hypochondriac and sort of trying to learn to suppress those things. Um, and then sort of in particular with my sleep, it got worse and worse and to a point where I couldn't cope with it anymore. Um, and at that point, when I first got diagnosed, um, actually with a slightly different sleep disorder, uh, I went to my professors at, um, at OCAD where I was doing my master's and, um, the disability counselor, told me, well, if you're that sick, maybe you should reconsider whether academia is right for you right now. And my program director said, oh, at least you look really well rested when I told her I'd been sleeping 16 or more hours a day. So that Uh... sort of really put me off telling anyone else for a couple years. Um, 
and yeah, I basically kept it quiet and I sort of, I, I wasn't open about it um, for probably, I guess, two or three years after that. And it, until it got to a point where I was just having a problem, I was having difficulty just sort of with basic functioning. And that was the point where I sort of started posting a little bit about it on Facebook. Um, actually, it was when I found an online, um, yeah, an online group for that particular sleep disorder. Because that sleep disorder is called idiopathic hypersomnia. And this was sort of the thing that I'd been given my whole life. I was always given idiopathic labels, which um, idiopathic basically means we don't know what's causing it. So people tend not to take that seriously. And so I felt really ashamed about having another idiopathic label. And so I just sort of didn't tell people about it. But then I found um, a Facebook support group for that particular condition. And I started seeing people like who were sharing my experiences. And I was like, oh, this is this is a valid thing. And not only that, but like it, it's not something I need to hide. It, it's valid and I need help. And it's OK to talk I'm about gonna, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that that was sort of when I started, and then, um, so from there on, I, I you know I tend to be a bit militant and, and stubborn about things. So once I started, I sort of didn't stop, <laughs> and I uh, yeah I start I started sort of posting about it all the time. And then what really sort of tipped me over was um, I had a really difficult time. I was working in the UK for a year, and I had uh, an incredibly difficult time accessing healthcare. There was it was just sort of bureaucratic mess as someone who was coming into the country who had a diagnosis but had not been diagnosed within that system. I was having to wait to be referred, to be re-diagnosed, and then eventually to be treated for something I already knew I have had and was needing treatment for in order to function. So it was like this really awful experience I was going through. And that, I started sharing that because I was like, people need to know what's happening and I started to sort of connect with other disabled people and realize how common these issues were and then yeah. that sort of led to me just being completely open about all of this stuff all the time <laughs> and so did, did that kind of openness we, we talked a little bit about your late your um identity identity as a demisexual did that uh openness kind of you were like okay this is what I'm going to pick this is what I'm going to choose because I'm I'm comfortable with this now and this is the label that I'm gonna yeah. use yeah absolutely I mean there was definitely something to the fact that the disability community particularly on Twitter I found was like was so open and inclusive or at least a particular you know because I know there are issues with parts of the community that are very white and very sort of exclusive towards um you know, various sexualities and, and gender identities and stuff. But, you know, the, the particular activist sect of the community that I found myself in were, were so welcoming and sort of so open. I was like, yeah, there's, there's you you can sort of choose the identities that, that make sense for you. And if a label doesn't work for you, you don't need to use it. But if it's useful for you for describing your experience, then go for it and use it. And I mean, because I'd had so many sort of difficulties with making people understand my particular lack of interest in most people. And and that was actually something that had really, it had caused me a lot of emotional distress, weirdly, because it seems like something trivial. But when you're constantly having people being like, why aren't you interested in anyone? You you start to feel like there's something really wrong with you. Um, and that was yeah. sort of was like, uh, on yeah. Of, like, on top of your diagnosis and on top of yeah. everything you already know. Yeah, and sort of as someone who's sort of always coped with that sort of feeling of being an outsider because of the autism and because of the, the physical issues, you know, it, it's sort of, 
rubbing salt in the wound when it's like, oh, there's something else weird about you. So uh, yeah. that was sort of when I was like, okay, so having this label to describe this particular part of my identity is is maybe a useful thing to just it's it's in a way it's a bit of a shorthand. It's sort of a, a way of being able to describe what's going on to hopefully make people understand a little more, or, or at least to help myself understand that there are other people like me and and that it is it is a normal thing. There's nothing wrong with with not being interested in many people. <laughs> Right, totally. Yeah, you know, I was I was listening. That's why it sounds like I. Yeah, like, no I, was I was like, I have to respond. What are you going to say? Um, but I think you know, you really. I, what I really appreciate about this conversation is that while this is a, this is typically a sexuality and disability podcast, we went into so much other stuff that I think deserved like, the the tagline of this podcast. You know, shining a light on sex and disability. We really shone the light on disability today which I think is so important because we, like, I had never connected so much of um, the disability community to autism and the way that you've, the way you've described it to me tonight right now makes me feel a little bit more knowledgeable in it and comfortable to say, okay, now I kind of understand how autism affects, you know, somebody in, in the real world and I'm not using a caricature to, to kind of glom it onto them. So, so I really appreciate that. Awesome. And I have to say, like, I'm so glad, too, that there's sort of space to talk about demisexuality and asexuality, because I know, too, like, I mean, part of the problem with pop culture is that disabled people are always portrayed as asexual. So there's this weird sort of conflicting sense about being open about asexuality and demisexuality as a disabled person, because you're like, am I betraying the movement? So it's it's sort of nice to have that space to talk about what that actually means in real life when it's it's not just sort of a trope being portrayed in in media yeah i know exactly and i think i'm I'm so happy to be you know one of the few spaces like especially in terms of an audio uh an audio podcast like when i was looking at you know podcasts that are out there not to two man horn but i totally will when i was looking <laughs> at podcasts that are you know doing this they they have one or two episodes on sex and disability but this is a whole this is a whole podcast dedicated to that whole community, and I'm really proud to be to be able to elevate other voices that like like you know like yours that want to come on and share their stories and and educate me on stuff that I would never have any knowledge on. So I really I truly appreciate that. Yeah, well, thank thank you too. I I also appreciate it. It's, it's sort of an awesome space that you've created. It, it's such a, it's. Again, such an honor, and I'm so so, so I'm so happy. We we can basically like throw <laughs> each other's egos for the next five minutes. Yeah. So, Alex, can you? Is there anything else you want the audience to know about your awesome self, or um, or autism, or your other awesome disabilities that I can't remember right now that I know they're there? Um. Well, yeah, I guess I, I should name the other one. The connective tissue disorder, which I sort of mentioned in passing, is Ehlers Danlos, um, and that's. That's sort of a, it's known as a rare disorder and very few people know about it, but it's actually increasingly realizing it's a lot more common than they thought. And the reason it's so rare is because they thought it was rare and therefore they were never diagnosing anyone with it. Um, but yeah, so that's another actually really awesome community on Twitter for people to look at is, um, yeah, it's called Ehlers-Danlos, um, E-H-L-E-R-S-D-A-N-L-O-S. And that's, there's some really sort of awesome activism going on in, in that section of the community too. Yeah, there are certainly some fantastic yeah. people who 
I don't I don't want to name them because I don't want to I don't want to yeah. give out their diagnosis without consent. But there are some awesome people out there who are doing that work. Follow them. Um, how can people follow you, Alex? Oh yeah. Um, so I'm on on Twitter, and it's just my name. My handle is um, at Alex A L E X Hagard, which is uh, fun to spell. It's H A A G A A R D. And I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. I'm pretty sure my handle. Let me just check that. Uh, my handle on Facebook is just A Hagard, and then my handle on Instagram is uh, Alex Hagard again. So, and the Instagram is kind of the fun one because that's where I'm doing all my fun selfie, invisible, you know, experiences of disability uh, art so, stuff. <laughs> people, you want people to send them your their selfies? Actually, that- oh my god, yeah, that would be amazing. Um, so on. This is actually on Tumblr too. So this is the, sorry, I'm forgetting because I just set this up in the last month, but it's the um, in-visibleproject.tumblr.com. And that is where they can submit photos to be part of the, well, the Invisible Project, which is basically I'm I'm trying to um, collect people's documentations of experiences of shifting visibility um, around disability. So documenting those experiences of invisible disability that people don't usually get to see, but also documenting those those weird experiences of like, you know, really obvious visibility that, that come along with being a disabled person in public. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, there is a submit button on that Tumblr and would love to see what people have to share. That's, it's such a cool project and so so necessary, I think. What you're doing is really tapping into a part of our community that gets, I mean, I just think people with invisible disabilities need visibility, ironically, they, <laughs> they need visibility. Well, you so, know, sorry, yeah, it's it's funny because this was another thing too, like I, I've been interested in sort of disability theory and disability arts, like since I was an undergrad before I really identified with disability and I always identified as an ally and, and identified with a lot of what they're talking about, but also so much of sort of disability activist history and a lot of what goes on in, it was sort of a very particular space I was in, which was like academic disability discourse. It was so focused on, on visible disability that I was like, oh, well, I don't belong here and I'd be sort of being appropriative if I identified as disabled. Um, so yeah, I think there needs, and I noticed that too a lot with um you know, with Kia Brown's hashtag disabled and cute, there were a lot of people with chronic illness coming on being like, I don't know if I, if I get to identify as disabled. So I think that validation for, for people with, with chronic illness and invisible disability is, is huge. Yeah. I mean, I think we need, what I love about Kia's hashtag and she's awesome and it's great. I think, I, I do think though that we need that's why I, like, you know, you've seen my, my social media feed. Yeah. I, me personally have like seven hashtags that I <laughs> rotate between. Um, and I think people with disabilities need to create their own yeah. kind of social media presence. Definitely. And so that's why I really appreciate people like um, Dominic Evans, mm-hmm. who kind of started film this and was like, I'm going to make this thing and here it is. So I think the that social media allows for people with invisible disabilities or any disability generally, but specifically invisible disabilities to create their own, to, to, to edit themselves gently as they choose yes, the totally. hashtag. And, and to define, to define our experiences of disability and illness. Cause this is the thing too, like, you know, in medicine, we sort of get written out of our own experiences of disability and we're sort of invisible when, you know, 
illnesses and disabilities get described. So I think, yeah, social media is huge in terms of being a, being able to give us space to to redefine illness and disability in our own terms. Yeah, completely. And it's it's I would say that it's that social media is an access tool for a lot of us. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, <laughs> it's with the luck of social media that we found each other. So that was it was an amazing episode. I loved having you on today. We learned I could talk to you for another hour, but I don't think the, I don't think the audience would, would like that too much. So, um, Alex, you, I we'll definitely talk again. I have ideas for like twenty five other podcasts. Awesome. Yes, for you. that sounds amazing. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being a guest, and we'll talk soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Have have a good night. Thanks. You see, I told you it was a jam-packed podcast. It was so, so good to talk with Alex. And so it really changed my perspective on my understanding of people on the autism spectrum and really got me thinking about non-visible disabilities and sexuality in a different way. It really made me understand that I carry a lot of privilege around uh, sexuality, disability, and physical disability. So I want to learn from people who are who are not visibly disabled and how sexuality is experienced for them and kind of the, some of the stuff they go through. So this is an open invitation to anybody with non-visible, invisible disabilities who wants to talk to me directly about sex and disability. I'd love to have you on the show and I'd love to learn from you and share your narrative with my audience. Just a brief production note, the podcast is going on a two-week cycle now, so you won't hear it next Monday. You'll hear it every other Monday at 5 a.m. This is so that I can produce higher content, I can do my research, and I can really just take a break because producing a podcast once a week, given all my stuff, was getting to be a little bit tedious for me. So this will be, be a chance for me to to relax and for you who haven't heard every single episode to go back and listen to the catalog again um, but you'll hear it every other Monday at 5 a.m. Thanks for listening to Disability After Dark guys. Really appreciate it. This episode of Disability After Dark is a handmade piece of crippled content created just for you. We record, edit, and produce each piece of this show to bring disability to you in a fresh, honest, and sexy way. Help us create more episodes and support crippled content creation by heading over to our Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash and pledging if you can. Your monthly pledge goes towards things like audio equipment, podcast hosting subscriptions, and everything we need to bring this disability-centered program to you. By pledging your support, you're showing that disability content has value, means something, and deserves a place in our media landscape. Thank you for supporting this podcast. Copyright Notice This program was created and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations. Any and all materials, including graphics, music, and audio recordings, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission.